Part two, chapter fifteen of Recollections of the Revolution and the Empire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter fifteen, eighteen thirteen to eighteen fourteen. Return of the King. It was in the month of April, eighteen thirteen, that we arrived at Amiens, where we were destined to see happen events which we were far from looking for. Here we found our brother-in-law, the Marquis de la Mette, whose friendship had already assured us a very favourable reception on the part of the nobility and of the people of importance in the city, who up to then had been very much dissatisfied with their préfets. The house set apart for the préfecture was charming. It had just been entirely refurnished with elegance and luxury. The ground floor comprised a complete apartment, where I lived with my husband. On one side was the cabinet of the préfet, communicating with the bureaus. The house looked out on a magnificent garden of seven or eight acres, well cultivated. This gave us almost the pleasure of being in the country. The first days of summer passed very agreeably. We often went to dinner in the neighbourhood with friends who resided there during the fine season. My daughter Cécile, who was thirteen years of age at this time, already showed a very great talent for music, and also had a charming voice of great compass. During the five years that we had passed at Brussels, I had given her an excellent teacher in Italian. Formerly from Rome, and not knowing French, he had taught my daughter to use the fine Roman idiom. She expressed herself in this language with facility. Charlotte and she also read not only Italian, but also English. We were very well settled at Amiens, when we commenced to hear the grumbling of the storm. Everyone was so confident of the fortunes of Napoleon that the idea did not occur to anyone to admit that he could possibly have any other enemy to fear than the frosts that had been so fatal to him during the Russian campaign. However, after the Battle of Leipzig, there began the requisitions, the enlisting of men and the organisation of guards of honour. This last measure caused desolation among the families. Under these circumstances, my husband had need of all his firmness. He served the government in good faith, and the thought of the restoration had not yet occurred to his mind. He neither foresaw it nor desired it. All the faults and all the vices which had been the causes of the first revolution were still too fresh in his memory for him to desire to see the exiled royal family return bringing in its train the former weakness and abuses of all kinds. The expression so well justified, they have learned nothing and forgotten nothing, often came to his mind. However, he endeavoured so far as possible to mitigate the application of the rules for the organisation of the Guard of Honour. The greatest resistance to certain measures was found among the rich classes, and I often heard him say, they give their children more willingly than their money. In a city devoted to the manufacture of woolens like Amiens, the requisitions were very burdensome. 
and my husband suspected above all things the greediness and the rascality of the requisitionnaires. The cannon of Long, which we heard at Amiens, gave us the first news of the invasion of French territory. Several days later, Monsieur Duto, the prefet of Brussels, fleeing before the invasion, entered our salon one evening, at the very moment that the receiver-general, Monsieur Dobisser, who saw everything in a rosy light, was saying to us that he had just received a letter from Brussels and that Belgium was in no danger of a coup de main. Soon afterwards, we were informed of the appearance of a corps of Cossacks commanded by General Geismar in the plains around the city. It was at this time that General Dupont passed through Amiens under the escort of the gendarmes. He had previously been transferred from the Chateau of Joux when Napoleon had had him confined after the capitulation of Bailen to the citadel of Doulon. They were now conducting him to Tours in order that he might not fall into the hands of the Allies. He did not go any further than Paris, however, and the severity with which he was treated made his fortune. The Cossacks approached so near to Amiens that they could be seen from the tower of the cathedral. The squadron of cavalry in garrison in the city, commanded by our worthy major, presented such a formidable appearance that they did not appear again. My aunt, Madame Denine, was settled for the autumn at the Chateau of Mouchy, near Beauvais, with her friend, the Princesse de Poix. Madame de Dura was also there with her daughters, and they invited me to come and pass several days. My husband urged me to accept, and asked me to return by way of Paris, to see Monsieur de Talleyrand, and ascertain the news. Monsieur de Talleyrand had sent him a note by Merlin de Thionville, but this note was so nonsensical, and the reputation of the bearer was so bad, that my husband, averse to all intrigue, was afraid of being drawn, in spite of himself, into some adventure of Monsieur de Talleyrand, who hesitated at nothing and who willingly pushed other people forward, while quite ready to abandon them later on to save himself. I accordingly set out for Mouchy, where I remained three days. I left in the morning after breakfast to return to Amiens by way of Paris. Not wishing to pass the night there, I stopped at the apartment of Monsieur de Lally, who was at Mouchy. After the time necessary to make a slight change in my toilette, I went to see Monsieur de Talleyrand, whom I found alone in his room. He received me as always with that familiar grace which he has ever shown towards me. People have said many hard things of him, and perhaps he has merited even worse, so that the expression of Montesquieu regarding Caesar could well be applied to him. Mais cet homme extraordinaire avait tant de grandes qualités son pas un défaut, quoiqu'il ait bien des vices. Well, in spite of everything, he possessed a charm which I have never found in any other man. It was all very well to be armed at all points against his immorality, his conduct, his life, against everything with which he was reproached. Nevertheless, he attracted you as a bird is fascinated by the eye of the serpent. 
There was nothing particularly remarkable about our conversation that day. I noticed only that he repeated with a certain affectation that Monsieur de la Touripin was well, very well, to be at Amiens. I informed him of my intention to leave in the morning. He told me not to do so. The Emperor was expected in the course of the next day. He would see him and would come to find me after his interview and would let me know at what hour I could command my post-horses, which would certainly not be before ten o'clock in the evening. I returned home very much put out of being kept another twenty-four hours in Paris. After having written my husband to notify him of this delay, I endeavoured to occupy the morning of the day following in going to breakfast with my good friend Madame de Morville, and in making several calls. At ten o'clock, my horses were attached and waiting at the door. The postillion was beginning to get impatient, as well as I myself, when Monsieur de Talleyrand arrived. What folly to set out in this cold, he said, but above all things in a calèche. But whose apartment is this? That of Monsieur Lally. Then, taking a candle from the table, he began to look at the engravings which were hung in fine frames around the room. Ah, Charles the Second, James the Second, just so. And he put the candle back on the table. Mon Dieu, I cried, il est bien question de Charles the Second, James the Second. Vous avez vu l'empereur? Commentez-il? Que fait-il? Que dit-il après une défaite? Oh, laissez-moi donc tranquille avec votre empereur. C'est un homme fini. Comment fini? I said. Que voulez-vous dire? Je veux dire, he replied, que c'est un homme qui se cachera sous son lit. This expression at the moment did not surprise me so much as at the end of our conversation. I indeed knew the hatred and rancour of Monsieur de Talleyrand towards Napoleon, but never had I heard him express himself with so much bitterness. I asked him a thousand questions, to which he replied only by the words, Il a perdu tout son matériel. Il est à bout. Voilà tout. Then, searching in his pocket, he brought out a paper printed in English, and while putting two logs on the fire, he added, Let us burn a little more of the wood of poor Lally. Since you know English, read this passage for me. At the same time, he indicated quite a long article marked with a pencil on the margin. I took the paper and read. Dinner given by the Prince Regent to Madame la Duchesse d'Angoulême. I stopped and raised my eyes to his. He had his usual impassable countenance. Go on and read. Your postillion is getting impatient. I resumed my reading. The article gave a description of the dining-room, hung in sky-blue satin with bouquets of lilies. The top of the table entirely decorated with this same royal flower, with the service of Sèvres, showing views of Paris and so on. Arrived at the end, I stopped and looked at him like one stupefied. 
he took the paper back folded it slowly put it back in his vast pocket and said with that sly and malicious smile which he alone possessed ah, que vous êtes bête à présent partez mais ne vous enrhumez pas then ringing he said to my valet de chambre call the carriage for madame he then left me crying out as he put on his mantle give my best regards to gouvernet i send him that for his breakfast you will arrive in time i reached amiens at so early an hour that my husband had not yet risen without losing a moment i related to him the above conversation which had worried me during the night to such a degree that i could not sleep in it he saw the explanation of certain perplexing expressions of merlin de thionville and he enjoined me to guard as the most absolute secret what i had learned for if it was by such means he said that the bourbons thought that they could mount the throne they would not remain there long a little later my husband ordered humbert to leave for paris to secure further news my son had been at amiens for two weeks driven from his sous-prefecture by the württembergers he had taken refuge with us in order to care for his health which had been compromised by an attack of pleurisy which he contracted at sens and of which he had been very ill when the enemy approached that city Ambert arrived at the residence of monsieur de talleyrand at paris at the very moment that the latter was receiving as his guest the emperor alexander he passed the night on a bench which monsieur de talleyrand had assigned to him in enjoining him not to move so that he could find him at hand when he thought that the time had come for him to return to amiens at six o'clock in the morning monsieur de talleyrand tapped him on the shoulder Ambert saw that he was fully dressed leave he said with a white cockade and cry vive le roi Amber was not sure that he was entirely awake shaking himself he set out nevertheless and arrived at amiens where the news of the events had already been received and when monsieur de la tour du pain was not entirely sure what position he was going to take but the voice of the people was not long in making itself heard the requisitions the guards of honour and so on had exasperated all classes of society in an instant as by an electric movement cries of vive le roi issued from all mouths people rushed to the court of the prefecture to demand white cockades with which Umber on leaving paris had filled the coffers of his calèche the supply was soon exhausted during the day when the news of the arrival of louis the eighteenth became known people began to pay us marked attention several days after when they learned that the prefet had left for boulogne to await the arrival of the king and that his majesty would stop at amiens and that he would pass the night at the prefecture a large number of people came to offer me articles of every nature which could be used to ornament or embellish the house such as clocks vases pictures flowers and so on monsieur de durat having been designated to take up his service with the king as gentlemen of the chamber had passed through the city to go and await the king of boulogne in spite of so many changes he had preserved all the prejudices all the hatred all the littleness 
all the rancours of other days, as if there had never been a revolution. Monsieur de Poix had also taken the road for Boulogne, but he stopped at Amiens, very much disturbed as to the reception which he might receive from the king, on account of his son, who was Chamberlain of the Emperor, and of his daughter-in-law, who had been Lady of the Palace of the Empress. But I had no time to raise his courage, and I confided to my daughter Charlotte the task of talking with him, while I superintended the arrangement of the table of twenty-five covers, which the King was to honour with his presence. I was in the dining-room when a gentleman entered and said several words to my servant, in a tone which displeased me. Approaching him, I demanded unceremoniously why he was interfering. He endeavoured to make an impression on me by saying that he belonged to the suite of the king. His surprise was very great when he learned that I was determined to remain mistress of my house, and that I was little disposed to let him give orders there. He went away grumbling. It was Monsieur de Blacas. A word from my husband had told me that the king had received him with much kindness, and that he was quartered at the prefecture with the Duchesse d'Angoulême. All was ready at the appointed hour. Twelve young ladies of the city, at the head of whom was my daughter Cécile, were waiting to present their bouquets to Madame. The carriage in which were the king and Madame was drawn by the company of millers of Amiens, who had demanded this ancient privilege. These were the fellows to the number of fifty or sixty, all attired at their own expense in new costumes of grey-white cloth, with large hats of white felt, then drew the royal carriage to the cathedral, where the bishop intoned the tedium. The doors of the church had been kept closed, and were not opened until the moment when the king was seated in his armchair at the foot of the altar. Then, in less than a moment, this immense church was filled to such a point that there was not room for another person. In thinking at this writing of the innumerable stupidities which later precipitated his brother Charles X from the throne, I have almost a feeling of shame at the recollection of the emotion which I felt on seeing this old man thanking God for having replaced him upon the throne of his father's. Madame knelt at the foot of the altar in tears, and my heart shared the sentiments which she felt. Alas, this solution did not endure for twenty-four hours. The flower-dealers then conducted the king to the prefecture, where he received the whole city, men and women, before dinner, with that grace, with that presence of mind, with that charm which eminently distinguished him. At seven o'clock we sat down at the table. The dinner was excellent, the wines perfect, which particularly pleased the king, and which brought me many kind compliments. It was then for the first time that this simple provincial gentleman, Monsieur de Blacas, who had thought that he could issue his commands, discovered that in the wife of the préfet he had to deal with a former lady of honour. He was very much confused by his mistake and paid me a thousand compliments in the endeavour to make me forget his first attitude, but without success. 
My cousin Edward Jerningham and his charming wife had accompanied the King from England to France, and His Majesty stated with much kindness that Edward had been of great service to his cause in the English journals by the articles which he had written, which had had a very great success. Both Edward and his wife suggested that the extremely English costume of Madame would displease the court of Napoleon, which was united at Compiègne to await the new sovereign. Both of them represented the necessity of not alienating sympathy at the very beginning. At their suggestion, I spoke of the matter to Mademoiselle de Choisy, Lady of Honour to Madame, and to Monsieur de Blacas, who spoke about it to the King but nothing could overcome the obstinacy of this princesse. My son-in-law had ceased to be a Frenchman, and had now become a subject of the new King of the Low Countries, William I, who was the same Prince d'Orange whom I had seen in England under very different circumstances. He returned with my daughter to Brussels to his family, and this separation was very grievous to me. I went back to Paris, and we established ourselves, my husband and I, in a pretty apartment, 6 Rue de Varennes, where my son Humbert was also located. The very evening of my arrival, I went with Madame de Duras to a fete which was given by Prince Schwarzenberg, Generalissimo of the Austrian troops. There I saw all the conquerors, and was witness of all the baseness with which they were surrounded and, so to speak, overwhelmed. What a curious spectacle for a philosophical mind. Everything recalled Napoleon, the furniture, the supper, the guests. The thought came to me that among all those who were united there, there were some who had trembled before the Emperor when he had vanquished them, and others who had formerly solicited his favour or even his smile, and that there was not one present who seemed worthy to be his conqueror. Certainly the situation was interesting, although profoundly sad. Madame de Duras saw in it only the happiness of being the wife of the first gentleman of the king's chamber. The fall of the great man, the invasion of her country, the humiliation of being the host of the conquerors, did not appear to trouble her. As for myself, I had a feeling of shame which was probably not shared by anyone else. Monsieur de la Touripin foresaw that the administrative career, although suited to his taste, would fall into a class inferior to that in which he had a right to be placed. He therefore desired to resume his rank in the diplomatic service where he had been before the revolution. Monsieur de Talleyrand, Minister of Foreign Affairs, proposed to him the embassy to the Hague. The new King of Holland desired it, and my husband willingly accepted this post, although he could have aspired to a higher mission. But a word from Monsieur de Talleyrand telling him to accept it gave him to understand that he was destined for other employment. My son Humbert was led away, alas, by the charm of entering the military household of the King, General Dupont, the Minister of War, was a former aide-de-camp of my father, and professed for me a great attachment. Humbert, who was desirous of being married, preferred to remain at Paris 
rather than to go elsewhere to be prefet in some little city at a distance. He was appointed Lieutenant of the Black Musketeers, a name which came from the colour of their horses. They gave him the grade of Chef d'Escadron in the army. End of part two, chapter fifteen.